Well, I was watching y'all while they were singing that. Some of you looked like you were excited about him coming, and some of you looked like you were scared he might. <laughs> Regardless, one day he's going to come. Well, today we're going to begin a new series in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. It's going to be interrupted three or four times as we go along, but we are going to go through this letter And uh, so I encourage you to become familiar with it. Thessalonica is situated on the Aegean Sea. It is a beautiful city in Greece. The Aegean Sea has some of the bluest water I've ever seen. Some of you have been there with Linda and me. The modern name for Thessalonica is Thessaloniki. And uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia tells us how the city got its name. In 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died in Babylon. His kingdom was divided up by four warring generals. One of those generals was named Cassander, and he ruled Macedonia. In 315 B.C., Cassander established his capital at an ancient city named Therma, or Hot Springs. He then renamed that city Thessalonica after his wife, who was Alexander's stepsister. So the city of Thessalonica then was named after Alexander the Great's stepsister. Halley's handbook tells us something about the people who lived there at the time. He wrote, in Paul's day, Thessalonica was a thriving metropolitan area full of vice and full of greed and full of false religion. At the time of the Apostle Paul, Thessalonica had a population of about 200,000 people. Most of them were Greeks. In the 2011 census, the population was listed at 790,000 in the metropolitan area. So Thessalonica then, in ancient time as well as in modern time, has been a dynamic and thriving city. There was a church in Thessalonica, and it is to this church that Paul addresses his letters. It seems that there are four basic purposes he had in mind as he addressed the church. First of all, he wanted to encourage the new believers. And he encouraged them by speaking about his love for them. Secondly, he wanted to respond to some false allegations that had been made against him. There were those who were saying that Paul was greedy and was only interested in his personal glory. Third, he emphasized the second coming of Christ. Now... It is interesting as we look through the letter that in every chapter, Paul mentions the return of Christ. And fourthly, he warned against immorality. So there are many circumstances within this church that are similar to our own. Thus, I think it is going to be a productive and interesting study for us. Now today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, Paul here is describing the Christians who are in Thessalonica. Verse number 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, you will notice in verse number 4 that Paul says, His choice of you. His choice of you. Now, folks, that has always been an issue within the Christian community. If God chose us, then do I have a choice in the matter? If God chose me for salvation, do I have anything to say about it? And so we have been divided through the years into two basic camps. There are the Calvinists who emphasize the sovereignty of God and there are the Arminians who emphasize the free will of man. So those are the two camps that have always had some conflict about salvation. Did, if God chose me, then do I have a choice in the matter? It reminds me of the church that was having a conference to deal with this issue. The people came, they divided the congregation into two camps. There was the Calvinist camp and then there was the Arminian camp. Well, they went into different sections. There was one man there who did not know where he belonged. He didn't know if he belonged in this camp or in that camp. So he thought about it for a while and then he decided he would go over with the Calvinists. So he went over there and they said, who sent you here? And he said, no one, I just decided to come. And they said, well, you don't belong here. You belong in the other group. So he went over to the other group and they said, why did you choose to come over here? He said, I didn't. They sent me. They said, well, you don't belong here. That's what I want us to do today. Regardless as to your position for a few minutes, I want us to be neither Calvinist nor Armenian. Neither. Let's simply see what the Bible says about salvation. And there are three or four or five things that I want to mention about salvation. So put aside your camp for just a few minutes. First of all, salvation begins with God and involves the Trinity. Warren Wearsby wrote, As far as God the Father is concerned, we were saved when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Spirit is concerned, we were saved when we responded to His call and received Christ. 
As far as the son is concerned, we were saved when he died on the cross. All are true and all are necessary for salvation. But whatever your position, salvation begins with God. He is the initiator of salvation. Now, Jesus confirmed that in John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. The apostle Paul confirms that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So as we talk about salvation, now remember we are not Calvinists nor are we Arminians today. We're just simply looking at the Bible. Salvation begins with God. Secondly, salvation requires God's love. That was the reason that Jesus Christ went to the cross because of God's love. That was the reason that Jesus took your sins and my sins upon himself because he loved us. That's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But folks, when the Bible says that God loves you, that is not just referring to a warm, fuzzy feeling that God has toward you. God acted on his love. And love is always active. God loves you and he demonstrated that love. In Romans chapter 5 verse 8, the Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we talk about salvation, it begins with God. It requires God's love and it involves your faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So understand that it is your faith that activates God's grace by which we are saved. So as Paul here is speaking to the Thessalonians, he says the gospel had been proclaimed to them and they responded in faith. Now look at verse number 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, do you see what happened? The message was proclaimed to the Thessalonians. And the Bible says that they responded in faith to the message that had been proclaimed. Salvation involves faith. Salvation changes lives. One commentator said, those whom God chooses, he changes. I've never understood those people who claim to be Christians and there was never a change in their life. That may be radical, it may not. I, I certainly did not have a, a, a Damascus Road experience with the Lord, but I do know this. Friend, if you know Jesus Christ, it changes your life. And Paul gives three evidences here. First of all, their work of faith. Verse number three, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Now, salvation results in works. James chapter 2 verse number 17 says, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. 
So James says and Paul says that the salvation that is true that comes from God results in works. We are not saved by grace plus works, but we are saved by a faith that works. If you are saved, then it involves work. So he mentions your work of faith. He said that's an evidence. He's speaking of the salvation of the Thessalonians here. He says, what is the evidence that you have been saved, that you have become a child of God? Your work of faith. Secondly, he says, your labor of love. Look at verse number three again. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. The words work and labor are two different words. The word work that is used there emphasizes the result of the effort. The word labor emphasizes the pain or the weariness that goes with the effort. You see? In other words, he is saying that the labor of love motivates us to work even when we are weary, even when it is painful. Some of you students think that your mom cleans the house and does your clothes and prepares the meals because she doesn't have anything else to do. That's really not it. She does it because she loves you. Some of you students think that mom runs you to school and to ball practice and to ballet and all the things that you do because she just wants to go for a ride. It really isn't that. It's that she is motivated out of love to labor. See, the same thing is true with husbands and wives. I know that oftentimes Linda does things for me that she doesn't want to do, but she does them because she loves me. And I see Patsy out there shaking her head. I know that she does a lot for the good general, not because she wants to, but because she loves him. The same thing is true in our service. There's probably times with the choir when they don't want to show up for practice. Isn't that right? And they lie. No, you you do it because you love the Lord. And because you're scared of Steve, but we'll put that aside. You don't want Steve on your back. I understand that. These deacons, they come to deacons meeting and do the things that they do. They they, they do all the ministry that they do. And, and, and Sunday school teacher, do they do it because that's what they want to do? No, not always. Not always. But see, that's what he's saying. He says that is, a, that is a, an evidence of salvation. The labor of love. You do it because you're motivated by love. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that's what you want to do. But it's what you do motivated out of love. And then he mentions the third thing is steadfastness of hope. Again, in verse number three, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The third evidence is the steadfastness of hope within the promises of God. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, 21 and 22, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Well, what did he recall to mind that gave him hope? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. 
So Paul says that I know that you know the Lord. Why? Because of your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope within the promises of God. You believe the promises of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's promises are true? The Bible is filled with precious promises, ladies and gentlemen. Precious promises from the Lord. And those who know the Lord are always encouraged by your belief in the fulfillment of those promises. He says, now then when you became a Christian, you, you joined the association of suffering in verse number 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He said the gospel was proclaimed and they received it. Now in verse number 5, if you'll look there, he says our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says the gospel came to you in power. Albert Barnes said there was great power manifested in the gospel in its leading them to break off from their sins, to abandon their idols and to give their hearts to God. So the Thessalonians then were transformed by the power of God. That, that is the transforming power of God. And then he says, and in the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who draws someone to Jesus. Richard Tao wrote, Paul is reminding these people of how God came into their lives, how God moved upon their hearts and made himself known to them. You see, it is the Holy Spirit who draws us to Jesus. I, I didn't know that the first couple of years that I was a preacher, and so I gave the Holy Spirit a couple of years off. I thought that that was my job, that I was supposed to draw people to Jesus. And then I realized that it's really not my job. All I'm supposed to do is to preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit is the one who draws people to Christ. And if he doesn't draw you, I can't do it. I can stand up, up here and plead with you and try my best to persuade you to come to Christ, to give your life to Christ. But the truth is, if the Holy Spirit does not move upon your life, then my friend, you will never come to Christ. And he says that they came with full conviction. Vine says the word conviction means the freedom of mind and confidence resulting from an understanding in Christ the engrossing effect of the expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. So what is conviction? Freedom, confidence, expectation. They received the gospel with conviction. So they received the gospel, and look what he says in verse number 6, and you also became imitators of us. Now listen to me. If you are a Christian... You are supposed to live your life in such a way that others would do well to imitate you. You remember a few years ago when Charles Barkley said, I am not a role model for your children? And Tim Tebow recently said, we are role models. We only decide what kind. You are a role model, and he says that those who are mature in the faith are to be examples to others. Now, that's the reason that we recognize those people in our church, those couples in our church who've been married 50 years and older, because I want to put them before our young people. I want them to know that in this strange world in which we find ourselves, that there are people who remain committed to each other. That there are people who stay by the stuff. 
that they are examples to them. So those who are mature are to be examples and those who are immature or babes in Christ ought to be able to look to those who are mature and pattern their lives after them. When Linda and I got in the church, neither one of us knew a whole lot about it. and So Linda purposely began to look around and she picked out some women in the church and she began to imitate them, to pattern after them, to learn how to be a mother and a wife. And it worked out pretty good as far as I'm concerned. I do wish she would have found someone who could have cooked, but she didn't. Now, I, I modeled after John Bassanio because I, I didn't know when God called me to, to preach, and Dr. Bassanio was my pastor, and so I began to model after him, and he took me to, uh, to make hospital calls with him. He's the one who taught me how to make hospital calls, and that's the reason I'm not any good at it. It's really not my fault. It's his. John, John didn't know what to do. You'd go into a room with him, and John would, would he, he always do the same thing. He'd walk in, who's your doctor? They'd tell him whoever it was. He'd, oh, he's wonderful. He didn't know who they were. He's a wonderful doctor. And then he'd pray, and then he'd run over you, and you're trying to get out. Now, Steve takes me around, and uh, he doesn't, he's a lot better at it than I am. So if you want to see, if you're in the hospital, call Steve. Don't call me. I don't know what to say. You look sick. But what he is saying is that those who are mature are to be examples for those who are immature. Now, look what else he says in verse number 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word with much tribulation. Tribulation is what happens on the outside. Folks, here's the truth. If you really live your life for Jesus Christ, there's going to be tribulation. Sorry. I, I know there are people who tell you, you know, if you become a Christian, it's going to be downhill and shady. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to, no, it's not. It's going to be tough. And there are people who are going to give you a bad time. If you really stand for Jesus, there will be te- people who give you a bad time. So that is the tribulation from the outside. But did you notice something? He says, enjoy on the inside. So we have tribulation on the outside joy on the inside. Uh Uh-oh. Don't see much of that, do you? Tribulation on the outside, joy on the inside. Eric was at Southeastern Seminary for a board meeting last week. He was telling me about a speaker they had who was a Ph.D. student at the seminary. He was in the movie Black Hawk Down. He's Christian he saw several. He has served several terms or tours of duty in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq and so forth. But he made a statement that I consider to be profound, and Eric was telling me about it. He said, "If you see a soldier who has been wounded, perhaps they've lost a limb or something, and you go up to them and you thank them for the sacrifice they made," he said, "They will say to you, it was an honor.'" to serve my country. He said, but if you see a Christian who is going through a difficult time and you say something to them, oftentimes their response is, 
man, I am struggling. I don't know why this happened to me. And they begin to whine and complain. That's true, isn't it? You go to a soldier who's lost a limb. It was an honor to serve my country. You go to a Christian who's going through a difficult time, and oftentimes it's, I don't know why this is happening to me. Because the Thessalonians responded as they did, tribulation outside, joy inside, they became examples. Look at verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Here's what I want you to see. And I've got to hurry because I'm, I'm, I'm out of time. The Thessalonians became examples to the Macedonians. The Macedonians, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Macedonians became examples to the Corinthians. You see, folks, if we live our lives according to the word of God, even though there is tribulation on the outside, if there is joy on the inside, then we become examples. And they were witnesses for Christ in verse number 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone, so that we have no need to say anything. He said that their word has sounded forth like a trumpet. Now that was involuntary, because if you know Jesus, you can't do anything but talk about Jesus. You're going to talk about Jesus. We talk about those things that we love, do we not? I hate to see some of y'all come and got a new grandkid. You start pulling out those pictures. I said, I won't show you mine if you won't show me yours. <laughs> but we talk about those things that we love. You know, we talk about the Gamecock. We talk about those things that we love. Well, if we love Jesus, we talk about him. It was not only involuntary, it was also voluntary. They had plans to share the gospel. Barnes says this is an interesting instance of one of the first efforts made by church to diffuse the gospel and to send it to all those who were destitute of it. They had plans to send the gospel. So the faith went forth. They shared the gospel with others. That's what we do. We are to share the gospel if we know the Lord. That's what we try to do here. That's what we try to do with television. That's what we try to do with new media. That's what we try to do by supporting missions. Over 200 of you will go on mission trips this summer to share the gospel with others. And then they were people of hope, he says in verse number 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is their hope, the coming of Jesus. One day Jesus is coming back for his church. That's the rapture. Seven years later he comes back with his church to the battle of Armageddon to establish his kingdom on, on earth. Now, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? He says, to wait. To wait. That means that we are watching for him. You know, it will help you and encourage you a great deal if you begin to interpret the events of our world through the eyes of the return of Jesus. You won't be nearly as pessimistic if you do. You just see all these things as signs that the Lord is coming back. And he said, occupy until I come. Stay involved until he comes. So Paul describes the church in Thessalonica, what Christians should be. They are chosen by God. A Christian is chosen by God, but that grace is activated by your faith. He says, if we live our lives for the Lord, 
there will be tribulation on the outside, but joy on the inside. When that is true, we become witnesses of Christ, and we live our lives in hopes of his return, that Jesus is coming again. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Now, I'm not asking you if you're a Baptist. Baptists go to hell. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? Because those who know Jesus go to heaven. Do you know Jesus? If you do not, I hope today you'll give your heart to him. Our Father in God, we thank you for the blessed hope we have in the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, especially for those today who do not know him, that they would commit their lives to him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation. If you're without the Lord, come today and receive him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. You come. Stand with me, please. As we stand, we wait for you. I'll greet you. You should come.